to a new increase of his presence and power, but, but a new level, I believe, on every front. And it just feels that way to me. It feels like it's time. And as we go into this, I've heard of many times where God begins to move, but things are not sustained. So I want you all to really give me your best ear tonight. Give me your focused attention because I don't, I don't want anything to fizzle out over time. I, I really want there to be something that has momentum and can sustain, be sustained over a very long period of time. And so what I'm going to preach on tonight, I believe, will help in the way of a continued revival. This was David Wilkerson, I believe it was, stated that Isaiah 58 is the uh, chapter that has to do with having a, a continued move of God over a period of time. So that's kind of where I got that title from. But let's look at Isaiah 58. I'm going to try to keep this word shorter than usual because I want to have an, an altar time where we can really pray for people and let God really move tonight, okay? All right. I'm just going to read through Isaiah 58, okay? You'll follow me, and then I'm going to explain it as we go. The first paragraph here, he's dealing with... Um, how Israel has sinned against God and things aren't right. But he says, cry loudly, don't hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to the people their transgression, the house of Jacob, their sins. Yet they seek me day by day and delight to know my ways as a nation that has done righteousness and has not forsaken the ordinance of God. And they ask me for just decisions. They delight in the nearness of God. Why have we fasted and do not see? Why have we humbled ourselves and do not notice? Behold, on the day of your fast, um, you find your desire and drive hard all your workers. Behold, uh, you fast for contention and strife and strike with a wicked fist. You do not fast like you do um, today to make your voice heard on high. So what he's saying here, and if everybody can get this, what he's saying here is that, look, you're praying and fasting in vain. I mean, you're, you're, your prayers are not going to be heard. And he specifically mentioned here that how you you drive your workers really hard, like your employees, you're oppressive to them, and, and, and how you're fighting and there's strife and contention in between you. And I'm going to tell you, there's some things in here that reveal to us what can really hinder our prayers and hinder a revival. And these are things I believe Satan has attacked revivals in the past. Okay, y'all ready? So here's what Isaiah said, in, starting with verse 5. He said this, is, is it a fast like this, which I choose, a day for a man to humble himself? That's number one. If you want your voice heard on high, you want your prayer and fasting to not be in vain, you're going to have to humble yourself before God. God responds to humility. And it goes on to say, is it for bowing one's head like a reed and spreading out sackcloth and ashes as a bed? Will you call this a fast, even an, an acceptable day to the Lord? So that focus on humility. And I'll come back to this, but what does 2 Chronicles 7.14 say? If my people will humble themselves. That's the first thing. And so it requires there being this deep level of humility before God. That really... Um, I'm going to share some things tonight that I believe really get God's attention and cause Him to move in power. Not because we have to twist His arm, but because it pleases Him so much. You know, like For example... If we're, we come to him proud and arrogant, he says in his word he'll oppose the proud. There's a resisting there. So if you come before him humble, what does he say? He's going to give grace to the humble. 
there's certain things that will please God, that will move his heart, that will really get his attention. All right, humility is number one. The second thing in verse six, it says, is this not the fast which I choose to loosen bands of wickedness and to undo the bands of the yoke and let the oppressed go free and break every yoke? So let me stop here just for a minute. There's different things you can get out of that. But the first thing I would say is this, to not be oppressive to people. See, people want God to answer their prayers, but look this way. People want God to answer their prayers, but then they're going to go home and be real oppressive to their family. You know, like a a wife maybe is is just really tearing down her husband, her husband tearing down the wife, or a parent that's just really oppressive to their kids. I'm going to tell you, that's a good way to not get God's favor on your life right there. Somebody that's in management and they go to church and they're praying and they're seeking God, then they go back to the job on Monday and they're being really oppressive to their employees. Okay, so that that's number one, to loose this oppression means that you're not being oppressive to other people. Okay, you're treating people with kindness. And you'll see this, I, I kind of put different scriptures together, you'll see this throughout this whole sermon. But also you can see in this about loosing cha- bonds of wickedness and the yoke and the oppression, Another thing is we have to be willing to forgive people because if we don't forgive others, it's like an attempt on our part to, to oppress people and put them in bondage to our unforgiveness. Like, I'm going to hold you in bondage here to the fact that I'm not going to let this thing go. And that, that's a bondage that people try to put on someone else, but it's really not going to affect that other person very much. It, but it will affect the person in unforgiveness a lot and unforgiveness can really hinder our prayers it clogs up there's certain things that if we're arrogant if we're we're mistreating people we're oppressive to people there's fighting and strife going on in our families we're harboring unforgiveness these things can cause a major hindrance in our prayer lives and people are frustrated We pray, we fast, we seek God, we do all of this, yet it seems as though he's not responding. This right here is a litmus test as to why maybe he's not responding. But then, it goes on to say this. Well, let me me say one more thing about the oppression. Now, this is a kind of a side note, but I do believe that prayer, if you humble yourself in prayer and fasting, that fasting does seem to help break down the satanic bondage the oppression that's coming against people amen how many of you guys have noticed that jesus said if a strong man is bound and his armor's taken away there's something about humbling yourself in prayer and fasting that helps to bind the strong man and strip away his armor and pull down strongholds and help break away that oppression So those are three things about that, that right there, that scripture about letting the oppressed go free. That we're not going to be oppressive to other people. We're going to forgive others. But also prayer and fasting will pull down those strongholds. All right, number seven, or verse seven, rather. Now here's where it flips to more of a positive thing. He said, this is the fast. Is it not to divide your bread with the hungry? To bring the homeless poor into your house. When you see the naked to cover him. And to not hide yourself from your own flesh. So at the end of this sermon, I'm going to give people a little bit of a challenge for the coming year. But see, 
this is where I was trying to say in other times, I've mentioned it in passing, and I don't know that I really spend enough time on it to explain it, but there's something about prayer, fasting, and giving together that is really powerful. And you see it right here. He's saying if you will humble yourself before God, and if you'll deal with the sin in your life, get rid of that, but you'll humble yourself, get right, and then you'll pray and you'll fast and you'll give benevolence, you'll give. These are things that will bring about major answer to prayer. So in verse 8, now here's God's response to this type of prayer and fasting. He says, then your light will break forth like the dawn. You know what that is? The presence of God and the angels breaking forth on your behalf. And your recovery will be speedily spring forth. That's healing. Your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord, your rear guard. You will, look at this, you will call to the Lord and you'll be answered. That's answered prayers. So we can see from the scripture that if we'll do these things, the Bible says, if you will do these, then I will respond and I will answer your prayers. You will cry, and he will say, here am I, if you remove the yoke from your midst. The yoke being that through confession of sin and repentance, Satan's yokes are broken. Now let me go on and explain some more of this. It says also the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness. If you don't want God to answer your prayers, here's a good way to stop him from answering your prayers. Gossip about people. I remember that I, I grew up, my family never did any of that stuff. I mean, we, I never heard my parents talk bad about preachers or, you know, at home or anything. And so we grew up that way. It was just normal to, to not have a bad spirit and not be running down people in the church and bad-mouthing the preacher at home and stuff like that. I never heard that. So that was strange to me. And as I got older, I remember one time I was over this family's house, and they were all sitting around the table, and I was there by myself with all of them. And I didn't feel it was the time to say anything right then, but I did say something to one of them in private later. But they just started in running down, you know, the preacher and the church and stuff that they were going to. Man, I was so uncomfortable. And I didn't grow up that way. That's garbage. That's pure garbage. And um, it just felt awful. And you know how that family turned out? Their kids um, don't, as far as I know, last I heard, their kids don't go to church. They're not living right. They're not doing right. You know what that breeds? That breeds right there in children. It breeds in them a distrust, distrust toward church and preachers and a lack of desire to go and a lack of honor in their life toward God's house. And it's just, I could say a lot more along those lines, but I think you get the point. This pointing of the finger and this speaking wickedness, and God is condemning it. In verse 10 he says, If you give yourself to the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light will rise in the darkness, your gloom will become like midday, and the Lord will continually guide you and satisfy your desire in scorched places and give, you, give strength to your bones. And you will be like a well-watered garden in a spring of water, whose waters do not fail. That's continued revival. So the picture right here is this. God says, if you'll do all these things, 
If you'll get that sin out, if you'll deal with this stuff and pray and fast correctly, he said, I will make you like an oasis in the desert. Hello, this is good. He's saying there'll be scorched land, but for you, you will be like a well-watered garden. You'll be like springs of water that don't run out. I will make you like an oasis in the desert. How many want that? And this is my favorite part of it. Because it's one thing to have a promise here. You see answered prayers. You see healing. You see breakthroughs. You see that God's going to give you a sustained revival. This is amazing. But then it goes even further and says this. He said, then those of you among you will rebuild ancient ruins. Raise up age-old foundations and be called the repairer of the breach and the restorer of streets to dwell in. Okay. What this is speaking of is this. In the body of Christ, since the early church, Satan has stolen so much from the church. There's been so much resistance against God's people. And the dark ages where the Catholic church reigned supreme was probably the all-time worst for the church, okay? But gradually through revival, God's been restoring things. But the point of it is this. God says, if you will do these things, I will use you to be somebody that will help rebuild the ancient ruins. Does everybody get what I'm saying here? This is huge. You will rebuild ancient ruins. You will raise up age-old foundations. You will be called the repairer of the breach. See, a breach is, is there's a wall around the city, but there's holes in the wall. That's a breach. There's holes. And you're going to be used to help fill up those holes. The restore of streets to dwell in. So God is making, he's going to make this type of people right here, those that can be used of him to help bring great, great restoration in people's lives and to the body of Christ. But it comes through revival. It comes through a move of God. Great advances come. Verse 13, if because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable and honor it, desisting your own ways and from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, then you will know the joy. Look at these three promises for those that are willing to set aside a Sabbath unto God during the week. He says, you'll know the joy of the Lord. I will make you ride on the heights of the land and feast on the inheritance of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Those are three big promises. Um, you know, we don't have to keep a Sabbath, but I believe that it is something that pleases the Lord. If you'll set aside, you know, either Saturday or Sunday and make it your Sabbath unto God and you rest on that day, it pleases the Lord. These are three promises. All right. So what we can glean from Isaiah 58 is this humility. Forgive others and treat other people right. Prayer and fasting from a sincere heart. Regarding the poor and needy. A Sabbath's rest, the feast of the Lord. I believe these things are powerful. You don't have to do them. It's not required. But I believe it brings blessings on you if you do. And look at this. In Malachi chapter 3, it says, The Lord said, Test me in this with your tithes and offerings. If you will bring your tithe into the storehouse, and if you will be faithful in your offerings, he said, I will open the heavens above you. Now, let's just stop there for a minute because a lot of people don't really realize that right there is an amazing promise. How many want to live underneath an open heaven? An open heaven is where there's no satanic block between your blessings. There's times when people are not right with God or whatever, and they begin to pray and they feel like that their prayers are just hitting the ceiling. 
That's a brass heaven. But man, when the heavens are open, there's an open line of communication. You can feel God's presence. Your prayers are going straight to his throne. There's nothing to hinder that. There's nothing to hinder what's going up and coming down from heaven in your life. But if there's sin and there's things that are not right with God, the heavens will get brass overhead. And man, it can be really oppressive and resisting against. So the open heaven is promised to people that are faithful with their tithes and offerings to the Lord. All right, and Jesus said in John 151 that you will see that he was telling his disciples, you'll see the heavens open over the Son of Man and angels ascending and descending. So this is both an Old and a New Testament reference about an open heaven. I believe that the heavens have been open with river of life for some time, but you have to sustain that. You have to guard an open heaven. Things have to be in order. You have to deal with sin. You can't tolerate sin. You have to be willing to deal with the difficult issues and keep things the way they're supposed to be. And God will keep the heavens open. All right, so let me switch gears here. God's standard of righteousness, what you see in Ezekiel 16, the sins of Sodom, which I've already mentioned before, but let me just go through them quickly. Ezekiel 16, 49, it's interesting that it does not say anything about homosexuality to me. When I read this, I was thinking, man, the first thing you think of with Sodom is that. But it says, behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had arrogance, pride, number one, abundant food, that's gluttony, careless ease, they were lazy, and she did not help the poor and the needy. So again, I've mentioned this, but Derek Prince summed it up in three things. He said they were selfish, they were self-indulgent, and they did not care about other people. The poor and the needy were out there and they couldn't care less. They were just interested in their own gratification. And he said that that was a society and a culture that bred a homosexuality problem. Now, that's, that's one thing. Now, look at Job's view of righteousness. This blew me away because Job lived back in the days of Abraham. Okay, this was way before Moses and the law. So back then... There was a, a priesthood we don't know much about called in the order of Melchizedek. But how in the world would Job and people like them have known this type of righteousness? There was, there was um, people that God was using back in those days, you know. Because look at how righteous Job was. I believe in some ways his righteousness exceeds what I see in Christianity today by and large. In Job 31, he said, I'm just going to read some of these. I picked some scriptures and, and skipped over others. But he said in verse 1, I've made a covenant with my eyes. I would not gaze upon a virgin, meaning I'm not going to look with lust on a woman. Isn't that something? Before even the law of Moses, he was saying that. He said in verse 5, If I've walked in falsehood and my foot has hastened after deceit. So he was determined that he was going to have integrity and be honest. Again, this was before the law of Moses, before Moses wrote out the Ten Commandments that said, Thou shalt not lie. In verse 13, he says, If I had despised the claim of my male or female slaves when they filed a complaint against me, what then could I do when God arises? What he's saying there is, I have these employees, these people that work for me, and I'm not going to mistreat them. I'm not going to be oppressive to them. If they're being overworked and underpaid or they're going through something difficult, I'm going to listen to their complaint and I'm going to try to be fair with them and treat them right. 
Verse 16, if I have kept the poor from their desire of cause the eyes of the widow to fail. So he's saying, I'm not going to turn a blind eye to the poor. Or have eaten my morsel alone and the orphan has not shared it. He's saying, look, if there's an orphan over here, a widow over here, somebody that's poor, I'm not going to sit here and pig out and let them go hungry. I'm going to try to give my food to the poor too. Verse 18, but for my youth, he grew up with me as with a father and from infancy, I guided her, meaning I did do these things. I did reach out to them. Verse 19, if I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing or that a needy had no covering, if his loins had not thanked me, and if he had not been warmed with the fleece of my sheep. So what he's saying is, look, if I saw somebody that would go to sleep at night and they didn't have a blanket to cover up and they were cold and they needed a blanket, he said, I would go get my hired people to shear my sheep, make them a blanket, and take it to them. If I have lifted up my hand against the orphan because I saw support in the gate, he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't wrong the orphan and the widow and the poor. Let he, and then he says about himself, if I was to do these things, let my shoulder fall from its socket and my arm be broken off at the elbow. For calamity from God is a terror to me, and because of his majesty I can do nothing. So th- this is so interesting to me because he was saying that his righteousness here, his right standing with God, had to do with him being this way, that he was not going to be a man of lust, he was not going to be a man that was dishonest, and he was not going to be somebody that oppressed his employees. And when he saw that there were needy people out there, he was a wealthy man. He said, I wasn't just going to gorge on that. He said, I would do something for them and reach out to them. This is interesting, isn't it? This is God's heart. All right, let me just keep going here. God's promises for those that regard the poor. Now, when I say the poor, let me use these descriptive terms. Widows. Orphans foreigners obviously the poor financially poor like homeless or needy people and also i'm going to add in here the hurting is how many people are brokenhearted and hurting and lonely okay this is what i'm referring to when i talk about the poor i'm not just talking about money but i'm talking about widows orphans foreigners Um, obviously those are financially in need but the hurting these are people that i would put under that category but look at psalms 41 It says this, how blessed is he who considers the poor, and that word poor can be translated helpless or needy. Look at these promises. I want you all to really grab hold of this. This this ministered to me when I saw it. The Lord says, if you will regard the poor, if you will do these things to the orphans and the widows, the foreigners, the poor, the hurting, if you will reach out to them and you'll regard them and you won't be like Sodom and turn a blind eye, but you'll minister to them, He said this, I will deliver you in times of trouble. How many want God to say about you, hey, if you ever get in trouble, I'll come get you out of trouble. Verse 2, he said, I will protect you and keep you alive. Look at this, you will be called the blessed upon the earth. I love this one. The Lord said, I will not give you over to the desire of your enemies. How many of you want that promise right there? Because you know that the devil's kingdom desires calamity for you. Satan comes to steal, kill, and destroy. 
And not only that, but the enemies, the human beings that are set up against you, you know, and in, in the ministry and in life, people that are have made themselves your enemy. You know, Jesus said, love your enemy and forgive them and all that. But how many want God to say, hey, even though that's the case, that, that there may be enemies against you, I'm not going to allow you to be given over to their desires for your life. I'm going to protect you from that. I'm going to bless you. And then he said, the Lord will sustain him upon his sickbed in his illness and restore him to health. Isn't that something? So when you start putting scriptures together, you see in Isaiah 58, humble yourself, get the sin out, pray and fast, regard the poor, and the Lord said your health will spring forth. Your health will spring forth speedily. There's health. And then you start connecting that with this scripture here, and you see again a promise about health. What I'm trying to get at is, I want, and I know you feel this way too, but I want God to be pleased with our lives individually, and I want him pleased with River of Life. And I pray about that a lot. And I ask him, is there anything else we can do? But I want, I want it to be right before him. And one of the things I love is, is that as, you know, we get, God shows up in there so powerfully and people are just hit by the power and soaking in his presence that we're not just kind of spiritually speaking, just growing fat and just, just absorbing all of it, but we're going out and trying to witness to people. You see what I'm saying? I, I believe that's important to God because if we're not careful, we can get too self-centered about these things, and it's just all about us getting more of him, and I'm going to be hungry for more of him the rest of my life, but I also want to be a conduit from which he can flow out to other people too. And I'm thankful for what we've been doing in River of Life. We've actually given quite a bit of money to um, bless the poor in different ways, a, a variety of different ways. And also with the Touching Hearts Benevolence Ministry, we've been going out to the homeless and the nursing homes and the, um, the hospitals and doing a lot. And I believe that's pleasing to the Lord, okay? But I wanted you to think about widows and orphans. Maybe just think about that as well. Maybe there's more we could do. I don't know. Just pray about it. But let me just say a few more things. I'm going to close this out and pray for people. I didn't want this to be a long sermon. But here at the end, I'm going to challenge River of Life. But let me just show you something. So God's way to prosperity... Number one, that we tithe. And I know that you guys believe in tithing. So, But I want you to notice something in Scripture that a lot of people don't know. If you study out the law and you study out how the children of Israel tithed and all that, here's actually what they did. When the children of Israel, their crops and all this would start coming in and their animals would start producing they would actually gather what's known as the first fruits. And they would get together the first fruits and bring that to the house of God. And that was not their tithe. That was the first fruits. They just wanted to bless the house of God with the first fruits. Then they would go back and they would get a tenth of their income, everything that was there, and they would bring that to the temple. Then they would also have what they called the second tithe and what that was because they had to travel on Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles to Jerusalem. They would take another called a second tithe and they would set it back 
That way, when they had to take that long journey, they would use that to eat on the journey and supply their needs. Or maybe they would sell it and use the money for their journey. And every three years, because it was all broken up into seven-year periods. You know, we call that the Shemitah now. But it was broken up into seven-year periods. And every third year, they were to bring all of that to the city near them where the Levites would make sure it went to the poor, their tithe. And God even told Israel, listen, when you plant crops, so think about the society. What I'm trying to get at is there was a society built upon giving. And God even told them, look, when you plant your crops and they begin to grow up and you go out to harvest, you look out and you've got this huge field of grain that's yours and you send your harvesters in there and they, and they begin to take their sickle and they begin to cut all of it and, and gather it up into sheaves and they begin to bring in the harvest. He said, don't glean to the corners. He said, I want you to leave the further ends of your fields, leave them alone so that when there's poor people and needy people, they'll have something to eat. And that was God's heart. So the children of Israel grew up with a mentality of when God blesses us and he sends rain on our land and our crops start coming in and our our calves and herds begin to multiply and increase, we want to take our first fruits and we want to send it to the temple. Then whenever everything fully comes in, we're going to count it and we're going to separate a tenth and we're going to give that to the house of God. And they grew up in it, and we're going to make sure and leave for the poor. And so they always had this mentality through the law to be givers and to, and to take care of the poor. And what I saw in Scripture was this. When the children of Israel were really living right, they were on fire for God, they loved God, they were doing right, the house of God really prospered. Like in Solomon's day, okay? The house of God really prospered. And the priesthood prospered. But when the children of Israel were backslid and not living right, the house of God would begin to get dilapidated and the priesthood began to struggle financially. They didn't have what they needed. And so the way that we can apply that now in Christianity is this. Whenever we want to please God with our tithes, what we can do is when we very first get paid, the first thing, this is the first fruits, okay? The first thing we do is set apart what belongs to God. That's our first mentality. It's not a mentality of I'm going to do all this other stuff and And then if I have money left over, I'll give it to God. That's not the right mentality. And people, by and large, in in the body of Christ, a lot of times steal from God his tithe, what rightfully belongs to him. But we're going to, the first thing we're going to do, it's like a first fruits. We're going to look at it and we're going to give God the first 10% that belongs to him before taxes. I mean, the whole 10%. And we're going to give it into the house of God. And then. We're going to think about the poor and the needy. 
As I'm building up to something here in a moment, I'm going to challenge you guys for the coming year, okay? Let me say a few more things. But the Bible says when you seek first the kingdom, all these other things will be added. So the problem I see sometimes is this. Let me give you a few things here. Whenever God's people, somebody really starts to be blessed, and let's read it here, okay? All these other things are added to them. The other things start being added. Everybody follow me? They're blessed. Let me say it again. So all these other things start getting added to them. It's like people begin to criticize, I guess, out of jealousy, some of those that are prospering. But doesn't the Bible promise us that if you will seek first the kingdom, that he will do that? So if we really are seeking first his kingdom and and our hearts are set on him and we're not worried, we're not chasing after those things, we're chasing after him and we're seeking first what what is pleasing to him and then he said, I'll take care of these other things, I'll bless you and add these things to your life. I guess what I'm trying to say is this, I I never have had a problem with people prospering in the body of Christ. I want people to prosper. And I want people to be doing well. I don't want to hear people are struggling and they can't pay their bills. I don't want to hear about people not being able to afford things. I mean, how are we supposed to be a blessing to other people financially and give to others and even give to the poor if we ourselves are living paycheck to paycheck, barely able to get food on the table? So that's not God's perfect plan, okay? And a couple of things, living by faith. Remember I preached last week that Isaac sowed in time of famine. He plowed that ground. There was no rain. That was, it was dry ground, cracked, okay? He's plowing it. He puts seed in the ground, covers it up. No rain. Yet he, he reaps a hundredfold harvest. Every hundredfold means every single seed produced. It's a supernatural harvest. I remember David Hogan telling a story about this guy, this some old Indian guy that was out, um, out in the jungle somewhere where he ministers. And he was out there, and he met him. He's giving him the gospel. And, he's, and the guy, he's telling the guy about Bible stories and different things. And he said he loved to talk to him, but at the same time he dreaded it because the guy had all of these, um, these peppers that he, he farmed all these peppers for himself and he loved these things and he would sit there and just eat them like candy all the time and david was like man they were so hot i mean he said i would sit there and talk to the guy he said my mouth was just on fire and every time i saw him he'd just pile these peppers on me you know and he wanted to sit there and eat the peppers and talk and and one time he went by and saw him though and it wasn't raining and the guy had read in the Bible about how God would do supernatural things, you know, and believe God. He'd heard the stories from David, etc. And he, and so David was there with him, and he said, "Hey, I know that God answers prayer, right?" He says, "You think God will take care of my peppers?" Says, this was a big deal. This guy's peppers, you know, and they were dying. I mean, all he had, he had a lot of them. A lot of these, I don't know what they grow on vines, plants, whatever. Okay, they had a lot of that. And they were all shriveling up and dying because they hadn't rained. And, and David said, yeah, we can pray about it. So they prayed. And, you know, it didn't rain. And those things just perked right back up and kept producing. And that really spoke volumes to that guy. 
God is the God of multiplication. Let me tell another David Hogan story I really like when they had this big event and they were only supposed to have so many hundred people and like double, triple, quadruple of that end up showing up. And I mean, he said, because they're out in Mexico, he said, we only had so many beans, we only had so many tortillas, and we only had so much of this. And we looked out and there was like four times the people. And we didn't know what to do. Because, I mean, they came from far, and they're hungry, and we've got to feed all these people. They went back there, and they prayed that God would bless the food. And he said that people just started dishing it up. They were throwing in the tortillas and the beans and everything else and just sending it out to the people. He said after they had, had given all that out to all these people, they had this huge, big copper pot where they had cooked the beans in it. A big stir, you know, they'd stir it like this, big old pot of beans. He said after they had fed all those people, the pot still had the same amount of beans in it. And they uncovered the area where all the tortillas were. He said they were still the same amount of tortillas. He couldn't believe it, man. It was like God just supernaturally multiplied. What I'm trying to get at is this. God can cause things to happen that's not within the realm of possibility in the natural. He can make your finances go farther than they should. If you'll do it his way, and you'll, the first thing you'll do is tithe 10%, the full 10%, and you'll, and you'll also regard the poor, and you'll do right before him. He will bless your finances and increase your finances and cause that it go farther than it should and accomplish more than it should. How many times have my wife and I, there's times just like the Apostle Paul, we can say we have really abounded in times we've been abased, okay? But how many times have we, have we looked at it and said, man, okay, the, you do this plus this equals this, minus this, this, and this, and there's a negative balance. All right, so Lord, we need you to come. And somehow, sometimes I'm not sure how it really happened, but every single time, somehow it would work out to where we would be able to pay everything. We all love the times when you're abounding. Okay? And everything seems to be great. You got extra spending money, life is good, right? But then, you know, you go through the times where it's tight and you've really got to believe God. That is when characters develop and that's when your faith is tested, isn't it? But see, we've made up our minds that even when times have gotten tough, we're not going to steal from God. I'm not going to do it. We're not going to take our tithe and use it to pay bills and steal from God. No, we're going to put it into the house of God and then trust God. God, you take care of the rest. We did what we're supposed to do. Now we ask you to come through, and he always does. So there is a life of faith and sowing in time of famine. Also, a few more things. I don't have a socialism mentality. I hate, honestly, I hate socialism. If you do a study on socialism, it utterly fails. All over the world, everywhere socialism has been applied to society, it has failed. So why in the world people in America would even begin to entertain the idea that we need to have anybody in a position of influence in our nation that's got a socialist mentality is beyond me. But a socialist mentality is this. Let's say this guy over here he, he works really hard, he's good with money, and so he's got a lot of money, he's doing good. Then you got this guy over here who doesn't have anything. The socialist mentality is, this guy over here that's doing good is the bad guy. So you need to take his money and give it to the poor guy. Now here's the problem with I, I believe in giving. 
And a lot of these people probably do give to charities and everything like that, and we give too. But let me tell you the big flaw with that. A lot of times the reason why, not always, but, but quite a few times, the reason why people don't have what they need is two reasons. One is they don't do things God's way, okay? But number two, they're bad with money. You know how many people I've seen, and I've seen this, okay? Let's just use an example. This family, and they, they're not, they don't have hardly any money, right? So once a year, maybe they get that big check from the IRS. I wish that our lives were still like that. My wife and I, it's been, we've been paying in, but anyway. But you know how it is. Whenever, whenever you get that check from the IRS, man, it's payday, right? It's, uh, so they get a, a big check because they don't have a lot of money. So they get a, this, this really fat check, right, and they're excited about it. So what do they do? They go out. They cash the check. They buy the biggest flat screen they can get. They don't need it. They all get expensive phones. They get all this fancy stuff. They get laptops and everything they can. Spend it all, okay, on that. Then, because they're bad with money, they don't pay their bills. They don't pay their electric bill, their water bill, or their rent. So months roll by. Now, they're getting notifications saying, we're going to turn off your water. (laughs) We're going to turn off your electric. And now it's serious because the electricity is going to be gone. They can't play with their gadgets now. So now it's really gotten through, hey, you know. And then, and then the, the apartment complex or whatever is saying, we're going to evict you. We're going to kick you out. So here's what they do. They spent $5,000 on junk that they don't really need. They gather it all up into their car. They drive their car down to the local pawn shop. They pawn $5,000 worth of stuff. They get $500. Okay? They go back and they pay their water bill and their electric bill. And then that only lasts for a couple months, and they're back right where they started struggling and not having anything. So why would we take from the guy that's smart with his money over here, that's a hard worker, and give to these people that as soon as they get it, they're going to go buy the flat screen and then pawn it and then pay their electric bill down? You see what I'm saying? The reason why some people don't have anything is just because they're not good with money. But if we'll do it God's way, if we'll tithe and be givers and we'll, and then use wisdom, you see what I'm saying? I don't have this mentality that, that people prospering is a bad thing. Some people look at others that prosper and they go, oh, well, you know, look, what? We're, we're, I believe that God wants his people prospering. Amen? Anybody else believe that with me? And I don't have a poverty mentality. Where some people, they're so afraid in life with money that they... A poverty mentality that I've seen is this. They could go get like a new car and it's going to come with a warranty and everything else, you know, a nice new car. Or they can go get a fixer-upper. So they take... They're like, they got this poverty mentality, okay? So they're afraid to get something nice. And so they go and they get the fixer-upper. By the time they fixed the fixer-upper 25 times, they've spent three, you know, double what they would have spent just buying the nice car in the beginning. Amen? But there's this poverty mentality that some people have that it's like they're afraid of doing well. And also a poverty mentality is a fear of being a giver. 
I knew, I knew a guy that grew up poor, and he was really, I could see it, he was really afraid to tithe and afraid to be a giver. He was afraid that he wouldn't have anything. If I give, it's all gone. It's like, that's not the way it works. Read the Bible. The Bible says if you give, press down, shaking together, running over. Has anybody thought about even what that means? That means you've got a big sack full of beans, right? And they pour the beans in, and you shake it, press it down, shake it, make sure that it keeps filling up, filling up till it's overflowing. So God says, hey, look, if you'll give, he said, I will give it back to you, pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing. So there is a life of faith and sowing in faith and believing God and, and not having this mentality that people that are prospering are somehow evil. The Bible says the love of money is the root of all evil, the love of money. Okay, it doesn't say that, that prospering in life. It, I'll tell you what the Bible does not say. The Bible does not say if you're prospering in life, then you're, that's the root of all evil. That's not what it says. It doesn't say just because you have money, you have nice things. That's the root of all evil right there. It's not what it says. It says if you love money. See, God wants us to be able to be blessed so that we can bless other people, but he also doesn't want us to fall in love with money and fall in love with things. Amen? Some people just can't handle money. Did I ever tell you the story about the guy that made... I, I can't remember the details, so let me just make it... It's a little sketchy, but this guy, he made... I mean, it was hardly anything. He made like $20 a week. And this pastor... It's a true story. I heard it straight from the pastor. And the pastor said the guy, he lived, you know, in a way to where he could afford that. I mean, he had the money he needed somehow to, to pay his bills and all that, but he only made like this hardly anything. And he was making a point that some people just can't handle money. And so he felt for the guy, and he thought, you know, I've got some people in the church. I'll mention something. I'll get him a better job. <laughs> Did that. The guy gets a better job. He's making more money. Quits going to church. <laughs> Starts going out, living in sin with that extra money, blowing on stuff, he, drinking now, doing stuff. And the pastor's like, what in the world happened? I mean, you, you, you can't handle it. He, he went from making like $20 to making like 35 a week or something. So, like, so that $15 more a week is now going to send you to hell. And the guy lost his job. Because he wouldn't do right, you know, he lost his job, went back to making 20 a week. Guess what? He's back in church. His $2 are back in the offering every week. He's living right. This is a true story. Some people cannot handle money. It's like it's just it controls them or something. How many knows that God wants to be able to bless us, bless us, but there's not something in us where it, it turns into a love of money and this, uh, this life of sin, amen, where God can bless us, but we can be a blessing to other people and it doesn't corrupt us. It'd be the worst thing in the world. You pray and believe God to get a better job and better pay, and now God gives you that. Now you're out of church on your boat you can afford, on, you know, on the lake or whatever, getting drunk and partying with friends. You see what I'm saying? But there's people that that has happened to. Money corrupted them. And I don't have an accuser of the brethren mentality. I don't sit back and, and judge churches. I've seen people put up there, um, like on Facebook and different things, they'll put a picture of like a big church or whatever. And they'll say, this is more important than feeding the homeless. You know what? They, those people that post that have no idea how much money that church actually gives to the homeless. And to be honest with you, it's probably a whole lot more than the people that's running them down. Right? I don't have a problem with the church prospering and them having nice things. A lot of times when the church is prospering like that, it's because the people are givers. And they're able to do a lot for the lost and hurting and the poor. 
So I don't have this accuser of the brethren mentality that every time somebody's doing well or whatever, then in my mind I'm saying, well, you know, they're, they're all a bunch of thieves and, and they're all in it for the money. I don't think that way, and I hope you don't either. Because that's not our place to judge people's hearts. Amen? All right, so let me close with this. I said last week, if the devil, if you were the devil, think about this for a minute. Let's play the devil's advocate. If you were the devil and you had to oppose God's people and hinder them, how would you go about making God's people ineffective for the kingdom? Number one, you would try to get them all fighting with each other, right? Number two, you'd want all of them to be sick. And number three, you would want them to not have any money so they can't give into the things of God. Am I telling the truth? Because if they're all fighting and they're all sick and they're all poor, they're not going to be able to do a lot for the Lord. And the devil knows that. And that's why he's, he's hindering people. He tries to hinder people in the realm of their health and finances and relationships. Because a family that's out of order and fighting and in strife and all that, their prayers aren't being answered and it's hindered. They're not going to be able to really be as effective for the Lord as they need to be. I'm going to do a series coming up on family, about marriage and family. It's important. It's important we know how to relate to one another, isn't it? All right. And here's the last two points I want to make right here. Motives of the heart. Some people do things for the wrong reasons. If you're going to be a tither and a giver that pleases God, but I'm going to tell you something. If you do it with evil motives in your heart, you're not going to be rewarded on Judgment Day. I'm just going to tell you some things. Number one, you're doing it before the Lord. I'm not saying it's wrong that somebody just happens to know that you're a giver. There's nothing really wrong with that. But if the motive in your heart is, I'm giving so that everybody can see what I'm, how righteous I am. Look how spiritual I am. I'm writing out this check. You know, you want a pat on the back. You want everybody to, a man to praise you for what you're doing. That is a wrong motive of the heart. And that's exactly what Jesus said. When you do these things, do them in secret as unto the Lord. And he said, don't let the left, left hand know what the right hand's doing. He's talking about that you're doing it as unto God. Everything we do, please hear this. If you didn't hear anything else tonight, everything we do, we need to do it to glorify the Lord and not ourselves. When you go witnessing and you win a, somebody to the Lord, there's nothing wrong with giving a testimony. But in your heart, if you're saying, I want to go around and tell everybody, look how spiritual I am. I'm out there doing, you know, it's a heart issue, isn't it? I'm not out there tonight telling somebody about Jesus because I want a pat on the back from anybody here. I'm doing it because it pleases him, regardless of what anybody else thinks. Because all you, you guys know, when you got witnessing, you got the good, the bad, the ugly. You've got the people that are nice. You've got the people that just don't care. And you've got the people that are just mean. You know, so the fact that you're going out there is not to, it shouldn't be to glorify self, but to bring glory to God. So in other words, in all that we do in the ministry, everything that we do, we pray for somebody that's healed. We pray for somebody that's delivered. We witness to somebody. We give financially. We give of our time. Whatever we do, we're doing it because we love the Lord and out of our love for him and we're not doing it to, to uh, bring any glory to ourselves. And the motives of the heart as well that you're giving to God, not to man. So, some people are so worried. Well, you know, if I, if I give to this and that, 
what exactly are they doing with all this money? What, you know, and it's like, look, you're giving to God, not to man. When, when somebody really gets a hold of that and, and really their mind wraps around that and it gets in their heart, I'm not giving unto man. I'm giving to God. So when I release this into the kingdom of God, I wash my hands of it. I've done my part. What somebody else does with that's their business. I'm giving it to you, Lord. Amen? And another thing is, don't have any control attached to your giving. Oh, my goodness. I can't stop here very long, but I've seen some stuff in the church world where people are givers and they want to control everything. Some of y'all that's been in church for very long, you probably have stories just like I do. But usually it's some of the big givers that want to try to dictate what happens in the church. They want to try to tell everybody what to do. And if you don't do it my way, we'll pull our tithe or whatever, you know. That's witchcraft in the church, by the way. But don't let there be any control. I remember this one lady. I was only working with the young people. And I was so thankful that I was. I was walking on with this lady. She was actually real nice to me. This was the only lady that in, in the history of my life, okay, that I can remember that actually probably had a Jezebel spirit that actually was nice to me. It was a miracle, people. It was a true, bona fide miracle. I don't know why, but she, she was always nice to me. And I remember, though, she was telling me, she said this. She was saying, well, you know, we tithe, and so we, we should have a vote on everything that goes on in the church. And I remember thinking, that's not how it works. You know, but that's the mentality they think. It's like paying taxes. We pay taxes. We all get a vote in what goes on in our government. You know, it's like, that's not how it works. But they want to try to control things. You know, don't let there be any control or manipulation or anything attached to giving. When you give, give unto the Lord and let it go. Don't try to control anything and do it to bring him the glory in secret. And great will be your reward in heaven. Amen. So here's the challenge for this next year. Be faithful to the Lord in your tithe. If you've been somebody that hasn't tithed faithfully, ask God's forgiveness. And be faithful in your tithe. Okay. Number two, here's what I would challenge people to do. Y'all look this way. I want you just to consider this and pray about it. Those of you that are tithers, that's great. Okay. I'm going to challenge you this year to consider doing this. Above your tithe, maybe add something, and you can put on the check benevolence. Okay, put benevolence, because benevolence means it's going to go to the lost, the hurting, the poor, all of that umbrella that I covered there, okay? Put benevolence, and maybe add to your tithe something, start out smaller, like maybe $25 or something. And just say, you know, Lord, I'm going to give my tithe, but I'm also going to give now to the needy and the poor in benevolence. Try that for the next year. And you watch, God will bless you. I've seen it happen. Because what we'll do with it in River of Life, and please do it through River of Life, because I want the church to be blessed by funneling things to the poor. It blesses the church too, okay? But we want to, um, it goes out to bless Israel. It goes out to bless the poor. In fact, I can't get into it all right now, but the last time we had a decent amount come in, I was telling Brother Zach what all we were able to do with it was pretty amazing <laughs> how far it went. Because there's, there's organizations that I, 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 know, I know them and I know their credibility and I work with them 
instead of trying to reinvent the wheel and, and us trying to create something, we just work with them about it. But that money went far, and it accomplished a lot for the kingdom. It really ministered to some hurting, poor, elderly, orphans, widows, all of that. And that, how many knows that that really pleases the Lord? Okay? So I want you to consider over this next year, because that money is just simply going to come in and then through River of Life out to the poor, to consider maybe giving above your tithe. Just think about it. And direct it toward benevolence this year, and I promise you that will please God, and God will bless you for it. All right. Be faithful to God's house over this next year. You know, be faithful to his house. Be faithful to be here when you can. And make God's house a house of prayer. It's interesting to me that Jesus said God's house is to be a house of prayer. He didn't say a house of teaching, discipleship, evangelism, or anything else. It was interesting to me that Jesus put the emphasis on prayer. So let's help make God's house a house of prayer. Also, be faithful to be a soul winner this year. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir because most of you guys do this. But listen, if you're somebody that has not been out doing any witnessing or anything... When we stand before the Lord, and this may be kind of a convicting statement, but it's the truth, there's not going to be a good excuse that you're going to be able to come up with why you didn't share your faith. I want you to think about it. What are you going to say to him? Well, I was shy. I was afraid. I I just didn't really have a burden for him. I thought maybe somebody else could do it. And whatever excuse you give Jesus on that day, it's not really going to hold water. Because Jesus said for all of us, Go out, make disciples of all nations. Everybody. Even with pastors, Paul told Timothy, hey, you may be a pastor, but you do the work of an evangelist. So the heart of God is, is that we're sharing our faith. Now, somebody that's an evangelist, is just, that's just going to be their life. I mean, that's their whole life, okay? If you're not an evangelist, you're, you're not going to be consumed 24-7 with that. But we are to be soul winners. We are to be a witness, Okay. So if you haven't been sharing your faith, I encourage you to do it. If you don't know how, if you're uncomfortable, go with our groups and you'll get comfortable. This is the year let's bear more fruit for the Lord. All right, let's close this out because I want to pray for people tonight. But what I'm getting at is this. This year, let's be more fruitful. Jesus said that if a, a, a vine is bearing fruit in John chapter 15, he said, if you're bearing fruit, he said, I will prune that vine I'll prune that branch so that it will bear even more fruit. I believe river of life has been bearing fruit. But I want the Lord to come in and prune some areas and bring some sermons like this. And it's convicting, you know. I'm sure that the tree, when somebody's pruning at the vine or the branch, I'm sure that that doesn't feel good to the tree, right? You know, and the Lord's coming in and he's snip, snip, snipping up some stuff off our lives, you know, and it's painful. It's like, hey, this, this is convicting. But God is cutting some things out of your life so that you can be even more fruitful. So if we've had mentalities um, against giving or against other things, you know what the Lord is doing in these sermons is he's coming in and he's pruning. He's cutting out some old things that are wrong that need to go. Some old ways of thinking that don't line up with his word. He's pruning that out, and he's wanting us to be more fruitful than we've ever been. And my heart is, I want to bear fruit for the Lord, and I want him pleased with River of Life, and I want a continued, sustained revival. Is anybody else with me on that? Let me say that again. 
If anybody else agrees with me here in a moment, say amen after this. I want the Lord to be pleased with us. I want to bear fruit for his kingdom, and I want a sustained move of God. Does anybody else feel that way? All right.